In this edition of the Decipher podcast, we speak to director Tom Francis and senior planner Anthony Hayes. We discuss the SCL Delay and Disruption Protocol. Originally published in 2005 and updated in 2017, the protocol has become a key document in delay analysis and construction. But what does it say about things like ownership of float, concurrent delay, record keeping, or global claims and methods of analysis? We find out with Tom and Anthony. So, Tom, what does the protocol say about who owns the float? So, um, Stuart, the principle there really is um, the project and the float. I think that's kind of the established view. Um, I think there's some limited case law on that. Um, the case that comes to mind is Ascon v McAlpine back in 1999. And I guess the protocol aligns with that. Um, I think it states the float is not time for the exclusive use or benefit by the employer or the contractor. Um, obviously some contractors take issue with this principle. Uh, we do see many a case where they consider that they own all of the float in the program. Uh, what we say in those instances is, is to those contractors is if you want to own the float, you need to show it. And the NEC is a big advocate, NEC contract is a big advocate for this, where it talks of things like the time risk allowance or equally terminal float. And those are two methods of the contractor being able to own the float by showing it in the in the program from the outset. It's not shown. Basic principle really is whoever gets to it first essentially gets to use it. Tom, on concurrency and concurrent delay, it's a hot topic. It's one of those things that delay experts and delay analysts are never going to get tired of talking about. But what does the protocol say about it, and how should you deal with concurrent delay? Okay, thank you for that question, Stuart. Um, yes, it's a obviously a very contentious issue, and we could have a podcast in itself probably on concurrency. Um, I guess what I've always um, established or, or, or learned over the years is that the original view on concurrency was, well, we hark back to the Malmaison principle that you get your time for two events occurring at the same time, uh, which are both delay and completion, uh, one the delay of the employer, one the contractor. Uh, you don't necessarily get your costs for that delayed period. I think... There's been a more recent case, uh, perhaps uh, De Beers Atos, I think, affirmed that position over time, not, not, not money. Um, however, over the recent years, as I see it, there's been some uh, more recent cases that have perhaps given a more stricter literal view on concurrency, um, which the SCL protocol now adopts uh, or is its preferred approach. And what that really says is where an employer delay arises, um, um, but it isn't causing any further delay than would have been the case um, due to an ongoing contractor delay uh, and where the completion date is not pushed out any further then there are there is no concurrency in that case in that instance and the only effective cause of delay in that view is contractors delay um, perhaps a harsher view um, and um, you know perhaps will be tested in the future in, in the courts but certainly I think this, this view on concurrency is probably becoming more established because, as I say, it's what the protocol prefers of the two approaches. And we're certainly seeing more uh, discussion, debate and arguments over this principle being adopted in the disputes that we see and when we're involved in. And how do you assess costs in delay claims? Is that your, your world, Tom? Uh, no, it's not really. Um, that's where the quantum experts get involved. Um, I mean, the basic principle, as I see it, is I think the SCL protocol aligns with this, is that you get recovery of actual costs if you can prove that, um, that there's a, there's a link between those costs arising 
and the delay being caused by the, the other party. And the basic principle being to put you back in the position you would have been had that delay event not occurred. I guess it's really dependent on what the contract says, but essentially the, the principle as I see it is that costs are assessed at the period in which the delay event arises, not at the end of the contract, as many contractors like to put forward their claims. And really it's about the costs that are prevalent at that point in time of the event arising, which can obviously differ. You know, the costs at the, the point, point of uh, perhaps the early stage of a project may well differ to the latter stages. And so really it's, it's proving your costs applicable at that point in time is really the key. Well, one, one point to note of interest is that the protocol talks, and I think it's a good idea, although I've seen it very little, if, if ever, in print, in real life, is where the contract says perhaps the party should set out in a pre-agreed rate for prolongation costs arising at any given point in the project, similar in vain to the uh, liquid damage provisions. And I think that would obviously cause a lot less disagreement over what the true entitlements of costs are for any um, applicable delay event. So Anthony, record keeping has been a, a thing that we've um, covered at every conference and every session that I've organised in the last 20 years, and still people don't seem to get it right. What's, what's your views on record keeping? Yeah, no, I agree. We still don't seem to be able to get it right on the majority of projects we see, really. Well, um, certainly not perfect anyway, and there's been um, a huge amount of investment with construction companies over the year in document management systems, all kinds of different systems to try and maintain good records. And I said previously, the, the second edition of the protocol uh, gives pages and pages after what constitutes good records in there. And, you know, it's, the, uh, it's become the bane of every delay analyst, really. Um, the protocol recommends agreement is made on the records that are kept and allocate the right resources to keep them updated. And then it's the same with the programme. The programme should be updated regularly. And whilst programmes tend to be updated regularly, they often don't contain all the necessary information that we need. And I, what I mean by that is they may contain um, uh, percentage data so percentage complete of certain activities but might not capture the start and finish date and that might be important to us when we're looking at a claim later on particularly for some some of the retrospective uh, techniques but it's, it's something that's relatively straightforward and simple to do but often falls by the wayside during the heat of a, of a project unfortunately but yeah something that i think the industry generally will con continue to struggle with certainly will con uh, continue to struggle with it until greater emphasis globally uh, is, is placed on it i think is, have you ever seen projects where records have been really good and you've looked at it and gone, oh, these records are spot on. I can put this claim together, no problem. Or is it the reason that they're in a, they come to you in the first place, the fact that they weren't keeping records and the only reason we see projects where records weren't good is because they were in, they're in that situation and the reason that they get to disputes and things like that is because of the poor records in the first place? Or do you, yeah. Do you... yeah, I don't know, I don't, I say, Tom, I don't know what your thoughts on that, but mine are generally, yeah, when the records are, records are poor, it often leads to more disputes. I think if the facts aren't contested, then you're obviously going to get less disputes. That's kind of my view. So often we see uh, projects where the, where the records aren't necessarily so good. That's not to say that the, all of them are like that, but it is, it is often the case, unfortunately. Yeah, just add to that is, I think in my view, often the cost of record keeping is looked at and not the value. Um, and obviously margins for contractors are pretty thin to start with. Can they afford to have someone keeping those records. Well, I argue, can you afford not to? Um, equally on the employer side, where we work for, on the employer side, quite often their records are even more scant than uh, the contractors. Um, and it, it leaves you know, that party in a difficult position to try and understand the true position on the project. So yeah, record keeping in general is poor, hasn't really changed over the years, in my view. 
where we get a case with good records is fantastic for us as a starting point. It makes our task a lot easier. It makes the exercise quicker um, and obviously a, a reduced cost for, for the client in, the, in those circumstances. But yeah, in general, you know, if we get to get better upkeeping, it makes the analyst role a lot easier as a, as a starting point for any analysis. Good. Okay, so Tom, the next question is about global claims. What do you do? You see much in the way of global claims? Is that an issue? And what is a global claim? There's probably a lot of people who are not that familiar with global claims. So certainly, I think we see a lot less. I think a global claim is where you, uh, the party, cannot really particularise the cause and effect of discrete delays on the overall impact on the project, and you essentially claim your overall cost as a result of the, uh, the issues that have arisen on that project, albeit a proper global claim should take out from that any of your own, either tender inefficiencies or equally any of your own delays that have arisen by, by that party during the course of the project. What the protocols say on it, um, I guess what they say is to particularize the elements of the claim that you can and only present a global claim for the elements that you can't. Equally, try and prove the global claim on any factual evidence that may exist as best you can. As I said, seems to be falling by the wayside. I think most parties to a delay and or disruption dispute will try in some form or some vein to particularise their claim, even if it's as simple as, you know, the records are poor, but they'll in, they may, what we call, in, impact the, the, the planned programme and impact that's planned, which doesn't call for many records to do that technique, albeit it's quite a poor uh, technique in itself. But there's some attempt to particularise the claim rather than just rely on we've lost X costs and we want to recover the full amount of that without taking off your own delays and your own costs uh, within that. I guess the key point is it's a high-risk strategy because if one element fails, the whole element, the whole of the claim fails. And perhaps that is one of the reasons that parties will try as best they can to try and particularise the cause and effect of each individual event based on whatever information they may well have. Right. Okay. So next up is what does the protocol say about disruption, Tom? So the second edition is pretty well structured around disruption. It's quite a good resource, in my view, to, to refer to where you have a, a need to assess the disruption on the project. Uh, what is disruption? Well, obviously, it's a, it's a loss of productivity, and uh, some calculation is needed in regards to how you assess that, that loss of productivity on the works. You look at what the protocol says it pretty much implies a hierarchical view on the different methods to adopt its preference being something site specific something that measures good productivity on the project against poor productivity usually that's uh, the preferred approach in that regard is what we call the measured mile equally perhaps something like the earned value type of analysis or trade sampling or such like it is adopted in that regard where you can't do something site specific what the Protocol says to do is the next preferred approach is some sort of project comparison, comparing the rate of progress on this project to another similar like project. Where that can't be adopted, look at industry studies, look at productivity factors that are out there in various publications to look at how general productivity should be aligned with the productivity that's being achieved on your specific project. Got to, got to call, got to just question the use of those factors. In my experience, they're quite often American-based, quite often uh, a number of years out of date. Does that reflect your, your specific project? Does that reflect the times and methodology of your project? You know, uh, that, but often they are used where site-specific productivity can't be measured. 
and then finally you come back to you know the, the, the least used approach or least favored is the uh, the cost-based approaches where actual cost is compared to tender cost the difference between the two is assessed as the disruption obviously if you're going to do that just be aware that you know have you factored in any tender errors in that assessment any events caused by yourself as a contracting party and you know you really need to be credible with, with that type of approach for it to be successful disruption in my view is usually the hardest part of any claim to succeed in any tribunal because of that you really need good factual records again to, to support your case if you want to pursue it and, and be successful in recovering some, you know all or some of your, your costs as claim so anthony what does the protocol say about methods of analyzing delay is there what, what what's its guidance and what what do you do and what's your views yeah well there's now six as opposed to four previously different methods of delay analysis um, and they're split between the prospective methods and then the retrospective methods prospective ones we call you know the cause and effect type methods so uh, tia as we discussed before some impact analysis and then things like impacted as planned and then the effect and cause methods, which are the retrospective ones, uh, things like time slice, windows analysis, uh, as planned versus as built, windows analysis, uh, as built, uh, th th those methods. Um, in terms of uh, which are the most appropriate to use, well, the, the protocol gives you guidance within there and, and, and steers you uh, relative to, well, first and foremost, what's in your contracts is the most important. So follow your contracts if you have a named method in there. Um, not always the case, not often the case, but may maybe. It's, do what the contract says. Then after that, it's a case of what records you have, and then when the uh, when the delay event took place. In our experience now, we mostly get involved after the events so of their time distance. So we would favour one of the retrospective approaches, and then it would be a case of going into them, so looking at the records. Uh, hopefully, they've got good records, and then perhaps one of the as built as planned as built windows or time slice windows analysis approach would be would be more suitable in that case. Anything to add to that, Tom? Yeah, I think as Anthony said, it's it's contract dependent. If if anything is written in the contract in that regard, it's obviously dependent on the records and the timing of the, the delay event in terms of is the project still ongoing or is it completed and your time distant from the events itself. We tend to see that I think most delay analysts, delay experts will adopt where the records allow it, a as Anthony said, a Windows type of analysis. The two methods in the protocol that deal with Windows in, in terms of looking at how the path evolved over time contemporaneously and I think those are probably the preferred approaches to really support um, and understand the case um, where the evidence allows you to do that. Thank you for listening to the Decipher podcast. As always, we've tried to ensure the accuracy of everything in the cast at the time of recording. However, no reliance should be placed on it and Decipher Consulting take no responsibility for any omissions. We hope you'll tune in again soon and thank you for listening. <laughs>